Welcome to What Happened to You, the podcast that interviewed footballers of the past today about their interviews from the past. Don't worry, it will all make sense when you listen. On this episode, supported by the set pieces, we talk to former Aston Villa, Motherwell, Celtic, Manchester United and Scotland striker Brian McClare about his Focus On interview for Shoot from around 1984-85 and two Private Life Of features from Match Magazine between 1986 and 1988. You can find the original interviews on our Twitter feed at WHTYPod and on our dedicated channel over at The Set Pieces, www.thesetpieces.com. Full name? Brian John McClare. Birthplace and date? Uh, I was born in a baby hospital near the town that I was brought up in, Airdrie, 8th of the 12th, 1963. And your height? Uh, I used to be 5 foot 9 and 3 quarters. And do you still weigh 12 stone? Uh, no. I think I was only 12 stone when I was... Uh, 12 stone. What year was that you're looking at? Well, it actually fluctuates a bit because um, I think uh, in the earliest, one from about uh, 1984, you were 12 stone. And then by the time you were at Man United, uh, it says you were 12 stone five. Yeah, that would be uh, fighting weight yeah, between 12 and 12 five. Yeah. yeah. So how's things, Brian? You keeping well? Very well, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, not too bad considering everything we're all going through at the minute. Well, it depends which way you look at it, doesn't it? Well, that's true. Well, I always like to look at it in a positive way. Yeah. Well, let's start some clearing by clearing something up, actually, and it's to do with your birthplace, because in all three of those interviews we're looking at uh, today, uh, it says you were born in Airdrie, but your Wikipedia page, and uh, as I weirdly recall, all your entries in the old Panini sticker albums, they've got it down as Bells Hill. Uh, so someone's having us on uh, yeah. in these two things, which is correct, because those five or six miles make all the difference. Yeah, well, everybody in my age were, would have been born in Belsell. Yeah. Where the baby factory was. Well, I was only there for a few hours, so I think that being brought up, in, where you're brought up is probably more of a... But on your birth certificate, the birth certificate will say Belsell, mm. if you want to. Uh, my death certificate might say something else. Well, hopefully you won't get one of those. I might spell my name differently as well. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, another thing we need to get sorted out is uh, the nickname Chucky, uh, and I've got no doubt you've been asked about this a million times, so here's the million in first. How did you get hold of that nickname? Well, the first one, you have to be clear about how it's spelled. Some people have thought it was spelled C-H-A-L-K-Y, um, but it's C-H-O-C-C-Y, which is um, short for chocolate and chocolate McLear. Uh, chocolate eclair that's uh, where it came from um, Tommy Burns of um, Celtic he was the one who made sure it stuck because he thought it was uh, uh, when he first heard um, a couple of um, Celtic fans shouting it from a, a terracing in uh, Baal in Switzerland he uh, thought it uh, annoyed me and all footballers, um, maybe a lot of people really like to, to pick up on things that their, their friends or their mates or their colleagues uh, that 
irks them and uh, continually to, to call them that until eventually it sticks. Uh, and uh, Tommy did a, a wonderful job there and it uh, has stuck. Uh, and I'm very happy with it because it's pretty unique, really. It's um, unlike a lot of other people's um, uh, nicknames. Mine's is actually shorter than my name. You know, it's not like Gigzy or Skullzy. It's actually got longer, you know. So it's it's good, it's good in that way that, yes, I really like it because it's pretty unique. Well, we've posted these three interviews on our Twitter feed for anyone that wants to read them. And actually, you were a regular columnist for Match in the 1980s. But I've got to say, Brian, I'm a bit sceptical about how seriously you took these things, judging by some of the answers that you gave. Um, I fancy you liked a bit of mischief with the interviewers. Well, see, what would you, the history of this sort of thing was that um, I was an avid reader of, of uh, Shoot magazine. I, that's what, what would be what was the, uh, this was uh, the only football magazine at the time when I was a teenager or younger than that. Uh, and you would read about all these. That was one of the things that, that, that I enjoyed looking at because it kind of gave a um, sort of a everyday view of what professional footballers did, really. But I, I always found that nearly all of them were mundane and always the same stuff. And when I was promised myself that I would try and make them. Uh, interesting if not a wee bit off off kilter i suppose mm. now whether they are or not that's down to, down to the reader but certainly it's in certain situations that have occurred in my life that have uh, that i've thrown up interesting scenarios that uh, relate directly to to the answers to some of those questions um well like most guys who got into football you've named your father as your biggest influence um did he come to watch you week in and week out throughout your professional career as many fathers did, um, even when you moved down to Manchester? Oh, professionally he did, yeah. He, he, was at, um, he, he was at as many games as he could because um, he, had a, he, was, he was working sometimes, working at the weekend, but um, certainly all the way through my, my games at Motherwell Celtic, Scotland, and as many times as he could get, get down to Manchester. Um, record of that would be the... Uh, the number of programmes that uh, that he left for some reason he would buy he put, every game he was at he, he would buy two programmes I don't know whether that was to give to, to other people but um, inherited a lot of um, programmes from those times um, several of them have been uh, doublers and at school you got eight O levels or I suspect they were probably called hires um, including Spanish and technical no I've got five hires Five I've hires, got yeah. five hires as well. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're different. So, are, they, are they different, are they? Yeah. They, yeah, because you do O levels in the in that time when you're in your fourth year, and you did hires the year after. So hires would be in between, in English terms, uh, GCSEs and A level. Mm -hmm. So that's what hires were. So you do, you had a choice to do seven or eight one year, and then four or five in the next year. So hires would be the qualification you needed to get into tertiary education. Yeah. And it's still the same in Scotland. Yeah. So it says you've got Spanish, technical drawing, chemistry, physics, and a few others. So uh, was there anything you fancy doing if you'd not made it as a uh, pro footballer? 
Um, the only thing that that was a uh, uh, slight. Well, I liked I, I liked maths. I liked I, I really enjoyed doing that. I went on to do um, further study in a, a university. So the only other thing that I did considered would be uh, potentially being a maths teacher, um, because well, one I, I quite liked the idea of the number of holidays they got, and uh, I, I wouldn't have been averse to wearing um, a tweed jacket with patches on my elbows. I'm still aspiring to that at the moment. I'm considering that in the next uh, period of my life. Well, there's still time to retrain. Yeah, but I've one of those things you're talking about the fact about teaching and, and that um, there was participating in a professional sport, having a wonderful time being a player. I actually went on to become a, a teacher and tutor after that when I became a coach. So I, at the time um, when I was considering the alternative um, employment with regards to the maths, I never thought that um, I would go on to um, post-football playing career to, to coach and teach, which is what I did. And I did that for a, a lot longer than I, uh, or about the same time as my professional career. So I actually managed to achieve both of, of those ambitions, albeit uh, uh, replacing maths with uh, football. Well, most people associate you with Celtic and Manchester United, of course, uh, and you made your name uh, at Motherwell once you went back up uh, to Scotland. Um, but few probably remember that you started out down at Aston Villa, um, and who were in the late 70s and 80s, when you early 80s, when you were there, one of the top sides in England. So, I mean, how was your experience there as a youngster uh, and why didn't it work out for you at Villa Park? Well, you can, you can say various different reasons about things working out or not working out. I think they did work out because of the wonderful experience in the 12 months, well, 13 months that I was there. Uh, Aston Villa won the first division title. Uh, and we were, um, as, as young apprentices, we had, um, had the privilege of being able to see all the home games because we had uh, duties to carry out um, with regards to, to laying out, kept making sure that uh, whoever's boots you were doing were in the right order, in the right place, sweeping up the dressing room after the game, making tea. Um, one of my, I think one of the advantages for me is that um, I was trusted to make and pour out the tea in the um, in the lounge where the the visiting guests would be, uh, in the tea or below the, the directors' room, which would have been scouts. Um, and other guests, uh, maybe the manager's guests or the staff's guests. And, and I had a, a wonderful memory of, of pouring uh, tea and ended up having conversations with uh, the Bill Shankly. How was he? He was great. He um, was recognised the, the Scottish accent and um, he gave me um, his sage advice was that... Uh, uh, just work hard, son. And I think that uh, that's probably what I've done uh, right through my uh, life. Um, if we if we look at some of the football-related questions from the 1984 shoot interview, the team you supported as a boy, allegedly, was the Liechtenstein national team. Uh, and what was it I was saying yeah. about not taking these things too seriously? Well, there wasn't one. <laughs> that was why... <laughs> <laughs> that's <I'd say. laughs> 
there wasn't one. So that again, that was the thing that that, that for me was that I, I I was entertaining myself as much as anything else. As I say that that as you go through years and years of people asking you questions, uh, there isn't been a, a gigantic number of questions that were like, wow, I like that question, that really stimulates you or really provokes your thought. It, be, it went back to, to reading the, these things. It was always the same thing. And I, I, didn't, I didn't want to be the same. Um, I, didn't, I didn't know what kind of reaction it would have. It's just my sense of humour. Uh, and that for that, there is an answer to it, but it's a non-answer because there was no national team at that particular. So that that was me entertaining myself as much as anything else. But me has me has I know it has because there's a few stories related to the other questions that are uh, well funny, very funny as far as I'm concerned. You know what people rem- what people have remembered from the things you're going to go through now. I mean, you go back to the one, for example, what my, what my name was and another one. I changed my middle name because I thought that was humorous as well. So I don't know if it's in that one or not, but there's another one. My middle name's not John. And uh, I, met, I bumped into a guy in, in the street uh, and he stopped me and he said, excuse me, Brian McClare. I said, yeah, and he goes, uh, I won the quiz tiebreaker. Uh, in the pub the other night because of, because of you. Oh, that says that was really good. Yeah, it was a good prize, and it? it was a fifty pound or something. And he said, "Yeah, your middle name." At which point I'm looking, I'm thinking, "Why would anybody ask a question about John?" You know, I'm, I'm thinking, "John." He goes, "Yeah, Tarquin." And I was like, <laughs> "Oh, right." So the two parts there that I said once in one of them that my middle Brian Tarquin McClare that I got from Monty Python. And the bizarre part of it is that two people in the same room, the quizmaster who uh, asked the question as a tiebreaker and somebody else knew the answer, but that was the answer. So there you go, that is a pretty profound effect on different things. I didn't realise at the time I wanted to be involved in that. It was going to involve a tiebreaker, but that was that was one of them about um, being economical with the truth. But good mm. for that guy. Yeah, you was your drink. He didn't offer to buy me a drink. No, <laughs> no. He just said uh, thank you. Wandered off. He's happy. Yeah. Who did you support? Celtic. Celtic. Yeah. Celtic. Yeah. Well, Celtic. You were allowed to have a. And we grew up in Scotland. You were allowed to have a. Uh, an English side as well, mm-hmm. uh, and I started following Manchester United uh, just at the end of the season. They got relegated from the, the first division. Um, particular memories, well, would have been highlights on on a Saturday night or a Sunday afternoon of um, of Dennis Law back here on the ball for City, uh, and again that United lost. Dennis immediately walked straight off the pitch, didn't celebrate. And a lot of people said that that was a goal that, that relegated Manchester United, but it, but it wasn't really. It was just a, a particular uh, uh, interesting moment for commenting commentators. So I was a Man United fan from from then and followed them through the through the Sunday papers and uh, again through the Saturday evening and the and the Sunday highlights of their. Uh, 
um, successful campaign under Tommy Doherty in the, in the second division. Um, well, in that earlier, earliest of these uh, interviews here, you've named Pele as your favourite player because he was a player gifted with everything. And your favourite current player was Pat Nevin, who I guess was and still is a good friend of yours. Yeah, Pat, yeah, you don't see that there's... When you meet people that uh, you 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 bond with or immediately, uh, you you make friends for life. And whether you where you see them daily or you see them annually, that the, that bond still has uh, remained uh, very strong. Uh, very much like um, one of your previous guests, John Cahoon, who also or we also met when we were, when we were young. That it's uh, friendships that are double will last uh, throughout, throughout our lives uh, because we, we had not only through the f- of course playing professional footballs together but we had uh, a lot of other things in, in common not not the, the least I suppose um, uh, this is very very similar senses of humour you know yeah um, you named your most memorable match to that point um, was scoring four against Dundee in the 83-84 season and then being dropped the following week. Um, yeah. how, how did the conversation well, with the manager go? Um, there wouldn't have been, I don't think there was much of a conversation. David Hay, who was the manager um, of Celtic at the time, uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't one for wasting words and he had his own way of, of, um, of managing and, and had, Played uh, that game in a 6-2 win at Dens Park, where I scored four. And probably I found out well, I wasn't playing in the in the European game. I think it was against um, Belgian team Mechelen, if I could recall correctly. I know that it was uh, an away time. Would have been when the, whenever David decided that he was going to announce the team. So there, I, there was no there was no conversation about uh, just to say, well, you did well on Saturday and then you're, um, but I'm leaving you out because I want to play a different system or I want to play a more experienced European team. It was just it was just that and then uh, that was it. There was no there was no there was no um, discussion about it. That was just mm-hmm. the way he managed. So you just got used to it. Yeah. And if you didn't like it then they he, he was available. He'd go and you, you'd go. You could go and have a chat with him about it, and he'd give his, he'd give his view then. But he didn't do, uh, which is contrary to what Alex Ferguson always liked to do. Yeah. So there's a lot less player power in those days, I suppose, than they get today. It's depending on what you're talking about player power, isn't it? I mean, it, there's and all the way through my career, you, you had an influence and a, and a, an opinion that would be listened to. But the only opinion that really matters, and still the only opinion that really matters, is the person who picks the team, the coach, or whatever other uh, title that uh, clubs uh, want to to utilise now. But the guy that picks the team is the the one you have to please. Um, Your biggest disappointments were losing in two cup finals in the 83-84 season, which were the Scottish Cup to Aberdeen who were possibly the best team in the country at the time, uh, and Rangers in the League Cup. Do you remember much about either of those games? I think that when you get to the... the when you're, 
you want to be a professional footballer, Jim, be a professional footballer, but I think that professional football is about winning and trying to win uh, a trophy. And with the trophy, you get a, a memory, a solid memory as a uh, medal that goes with that. And you want to have winners' medals and, uh, to get to, to two finals in the, the first season and to lose two finals. Difficult, yeah. Aberdeen were the the best team in Scotland at the time, uh, but losing in finals is at the beginning of those, that particular time is because you have no reference to anything else. Is uh, was disappointing, but when you reflect back on on and look, I think look in a positive way, and that we didn't lose in the semi final. We got to the final on that day. Uh, it wasn't. We weren't good enough to win either game quite clearly because we didn't. And uh, that's the way it is. But wonderful memories of being involved in that. And the the losers' medals are just as pretty as the the winners' medals. McClare was looking for a one-two, and he's done it. McClare has broken the Celtic club record. His 33rd goal of the season, and it may turn out to be an extremely valuable one. Well, Brian, let's move away from football now, because so much in these three profiles relates to other things, and it's obvious from reading them that music was very important to you, and you take uh, you took great interest in, for example, what you would do um, if you were invisible for a day would be that you'd raid a record shop. Uh, was your answer. And what would you do with £50,000? You'd blow it all on 4,000 CDs, which by my reckoning is £12.50 per CD, which sounds pretty expensive for the 1980s. So were were you often to be found cutting about Glasgow and Manchester with LPs tucked under your arm? Yeah, I still do it now. (laughs) Um, I was... uh, Recently, I um, I had been uh, record shopping or album shopping vinyl. Um, which is very expensive now in comparison to the to the eighties. Uh, CDs have gone completely the other way. You can pick them up for for nothing. But even second hand vinyl now is is uh, well probably value for money, but it's expensive. And um, I had um, bought some albums and being a, a responsible. Uh, citizen, I have always been keen on on recycling, so I usually have a my own carrier bag with me, and the carrier bag is usually a a supermarket carrier bag. It isn't um, a designer tote bag. And well, maybe I might invest in some like that in the future. But and I they went into uh, the establishment for a refreshment, and I had my LPs in uh, this. Uh, supermarket bag, perfect size as well. And I was just sitting, and I was watching the football, and there was a group of guys next to me who were watching the football as well. We all turned out to be um, Celtic supporters, and they were having a debate. It's quite interesting because a lot of people have a debate where you're sitting when you can hear them having a debate. So sometimes that always amuses me. It's very much an earshot. I don't know whether people are expecting you to hold up your hand and agree either way. I don't. I wait till till I can see what. Entertainment, I can get out of it, and eventually they they, they send someone over to inquire whether it, whether it is me or not, you know. And the the other 
part of it is the the wager has always been a fiver. It's never changed. So from 1980 all the way to now, 2020, it's still been a fiver. It's a fiver, it's a fiver on this. And depending on how I feel, I may admit or deny that it's up to the people to, to then, and then you'll have a debate told you it wasn't, yes, they told you it was. And the reason why they, they, should, they, they decided categorically it could not be me is because I had a bag from a supermarket. That's what they decided. It was a deciding fact. That was a decisive factor, which I thought was brilliant. You know, so from now on, it'll be always be a so one supermarket or other that I'll be carrying my newly purchased vinyl in. About when it. There you go. You could play a game with that, couldn't you? You know, uh, people on social media saying, "I've just. I'm sure I've just spotted <laughs> Brian McClare with a with an Asda carrier bag, and you know, see what reaction you get from that kind of thing." Well, yeah, there, there, there's a. There's, Distinct possibility because it's almost a daily occurrence, yeah. Not with vinyl in it, maybe what it's usually for. <laughs> well, um, some of the bands you've named as your favourites is quite an eclectic mix of 80s indie, pop and classic rock. None, none of your Phil Collins and your Lionel Richie here. Uh, we've got the Psychedelic Furs, the Mighty War, David Bowie, Prince, uh, Zeppelin, Micro Disney and the fantastically named The Men They Couldn't Hang. Um, those last two, I confess, said not knowing anything about You've never heard of the men that couldn't hang? No, no, way before my time. Well, I think you like them. Yeah, well, tell us, tell us about them. I've only read a little bit about them, but, you know, what sort of, what would you compare yeah, well, them to? They, they came, came a bit like, I suppose, like, a bit like the Pogues come out of a, an Irish-based folk background uh, in, well, come from all over the place, but a lot of them are Played a lot around um, Kilburn and uh, with a lot of pubs where I could play. So I came out with pub, uh, the pub scene. Uh, and uh, they were a uh, very, well, they were like, like they sounded traditional, but with um, contemporary lyrics. Uh, uh, but that kind of raucous party, kind of way. Uh, I would recommend it. From a, from as a, a great example, there's the the Ghost of Cable Street. There's a track for you to, to listen to. And I just enjoy their music. I've been to see them. Uh, I got a, because I, I, I had mentioned them previously um, a few years ago, and a long time after that, um, someone who was also very keen on the mannequin and gave me a, a sent me a, a, a free LP. So. Every now and again, you get a little bonus from some of the things you say, but uh, a lot of that stuff uh, is still same today, you know, but it's added to by mainly indie stuff. Uh, I can understand a bit more about... Well, I think that, for example, a lot of people would talk about, and a lot of it would be George Benson and Phil Collins, as you say, would be answers, Lionel Richie, and there's quite a few of them would be uh, Luther Van Dross, who I can appreciate a lot more now, considering that he sang on um, David Bowie's songs. Did, I've spoken to Pat Nevin a few times about how teammates perceived him in the dressing room, because you know you might have dressed a little bit differently, and you know he's perhaps a little bit educated more than some of his teammates. But I think 
I think he used to get a lot of grief from his teammates because he liked different things in music compared to the norm. Did you ever find the same thing from the guys you played with? Because you listen to, you know, a lot of different bands so they would have been listening to. Well, part of it, it was just part of the, the banter. About if they give you um, sort of ripping about music or clothes uh, or or any other kind of views, it allowed you to to um, um, legitimately have a go back at them for the same kind of reasons. And normally, because you were or I wasn't, probably Pat and John were, were more. Um, I suppose well, we had more, spent more time, um, I suppose it'd be studying your music and your books and your films, then you were always in the upper hand when it came to having a, a debate or a discussion about it. They would all, from my experience, they would all, all give in and uh, resort to um, the expletives to end the particular debate, you know. And, and I, I'm sure John and, and Pat would be similar to me is that uh, once you get away involved in that part, of, a huge part of it was um, I wanted to be entertained. I wanted to be entertained every day. I wanted to enjoy myself every day. And a lot of times to be able to do that, you had to um, sometimes even start up the conversation knowing that you would get a, a, an, an opposite reaction to that. And then you can, you can continue along a, a line of entertainment. And a lot of it to do for me was entertainment, but... It's what you enjoyed, what you believed in, and, and you wanted to, to stick up for that and, and challenge your, uh, your your teammates, your colleagues and friends to um, to respond in a similar passionate way about whatever they, they thought about it. But a lot of it was, not everyone, but uh, a lot of them were just something that they, they put on, you know, that uh, you go into, I mean, I remember being in, Gary Pallister used to live in the same street as me, and we... Um, we travelled as a car shared for several years, and I don't. And I've got this thing in my head that that uh, Gary had the one CD in his car for months, and that was um, Sting, uh, and and they just played that. I don't know if he just thought that was a way of torturing me from the half an hour, thirty-five minute journey from our home to to Salford where we trained. Uh, whereas me, I, at the time, I, I, I wanted to have a 12-stack CD player that played randomly, you know. <laughs> he, he was quite comfortable having this. I don't know if it was or not, but that was just like... And and a lot of the other guys would be the same thing. It was just a noise. He couldn't, he couldn't tell you he was in a band or what the history was. It's just, oh, well, somebody gave it to me or I liked it on the radio. Mm. We, we, well, certainly, we all wanted to, we all went to see uh, the bands that we liked. And read about them, you know, we, we bought them music papers, so we were there. did all those sort of things, you know. I've been doing that in parallel with um, was reading the football stuff. The, the first time I met Pat, when we were 16, I think, we'd been both called up for a, an under-17 national team. And Pat uh, was, was, didn't turn up at the same time as everyone else. Can't, I can't remember the reason why um, we were put in his roommates and, and Pat walked in dressed in his, um, the same clothes he wears now. Not the exact same clothes, but the same style of clothes he wears now. Uh, with an NME rolled up under his, under his arm. And I thought, ah, I think I like this guy. 
Um, in the profile from around 1986, we find out that your favorite piece of clothing was a Billy Bragg t-shirt, your favorite possession at, uh, possession at home was your stereo MIDI system, and that you wanted a portable CD player for your birthday that year. Now, they would have been absolutely cutting edge at that time. Do you remember if you ever got one? I never got a portable CD player at the time, but it's strange enough, somebody gave me one a couple of months ago, just... Just um, somebody who'd, uh, well, a friend of mine who's also called Brian, um, he, uh, he he had for some reason he had he had two, so he he brought one round to the to the house. So I eventually did get a portable um, um, CD player, but uh, I was um, delighted when um, in a way because I. Because you're traveling and you want to always wanted to have i mean i had that um walkman or similar type of things uh, as soon as they came out so but you had to you, you carried several tapes and, and mixed tapes and i've still got some of them um, parts parts mixed tapes uh now i've still got i've still got a tape player not a not an individual one but i've got one Mm. that uh, can play in the house and it's great going back and listening to them and, and I, I must admit that, that when um, when the digital format came in with regards to um, being able to uh, squeeze music into a small device uh, I, I thought that was great right from the very beginning uh, to be able to have your a library with you when you when you travelled was was, um, was uh, is and was a joy I still got all the CDs as well. <laughs> um, well, if we move to other sports now, uh, your most admired sportsman from another field comes up twice actually, and it's legendary West Indian cricketer Viv Richards. Um, what was it they called him, the Master Blaster? Yeah, I've always. That's been. Someone said to me once that this is while after I'd finished playing that said of me while I was there to other people. And pointing at me and said that all I wanted, as in me, was was to be part of a team. And I'd never considered that before. Uh, and, but when I pondered on it, he was absolutely right. So when I looked at, uh, when you look through a lot of the, a lot of maybe even still now, the favourite favourite sports person, a lot, a lot of the, a lot of team players pick. Individuals, uh, a lot of people will still pick um, um, Muhammad Ali, uh, and I always thought that, that coming from team sport, that really you should understand that team sport is about the collective, not about the individual, and that uh, it should be someone from a team. Dev Richards was a wonderful, wonderful uh, batsman, but. He always seemed to be, again, happy being part of a team, a great team. Uh, I've always loved cricket. Uh, I still love it. I love listening to. Uh, there's nothing better than, than for me than listening to uh, uh, TMS and uh, England struggling. <laughs> um, now, the person you'd most like to meet is interesting, and it's got me wondering if this is another one of those um, and that you've answered with a glint in your eye, because you said that the person you'd most like to meet was Idi Amin, the former president of Uganda, an internationally renowned tyrannical despot. Yeah, well, 
Yeah, well, there may well have been two different parts of that, really. I mean, um, there would have been the part of that that certainly growing up uh, watching the news, uh, he would have um, played a big part of of world news at the time by being uh, the the leader of the leader of a country that he was. There was always there was there was always lots of stuff about him. Uh, then it became later on the, a proclamation from from him that he was the last king of Scotland. Um, I can't quite remember why. It would probably have been something on the, the television that would have been something to do with that. But I can imagine that, uh, yeah, he would have been. Um, if someone who could declare that uh, they were the last king of Scotland would have uh, been of some interest, but not... Uh, the, the, well, I mean, the situation with regards to all the things that happened uh, with them and with other despots is, um, is, is well, there's a lot of that, wasn't there? I mean, for me, growing up in the 60s and 70s, mm. there seems to be several of them prominent in the news throughout the world. Mm, yeah. I imagine he would have been a, quite a, an unusual um, dinner party guest. Yeah, there were... Well. Yeah, well, but like anything, isn't it? I suppose that anybody that's, that's had... A life, albeit a life of being unpleasant, would have uh, a dinner party. Would have something to say. He certainly would. I would imagine it was something like that. You would, uh, they would, they would be, um, there would be someone who would have very much be have an opinion about themselves. I think a lot of that kind of thing when you look at it, it's about them and it's about themselves as much as anything else. Mm. Uh, but the, country, the world was full of, full of them, much more than there is at the moment. Mm. Well, certainly that was what was reported on the, on the, the few uh, places where you could get news, which is mainly the television news. Um, in the 84 shoot piece, um, it says that you're living in a semi-detached in Airdrie and driving a Ford Escort XR3, a very popular choice for footballers of the day. Uh, in the later Celtic interviewing match, they've asked you what your first car was and how much it cost. Do you remember? The first car that I owned was a um, Morris Marina, a lime green. Lovely. And it was £400. Yeah, that would have been a fair, yeah, fair amount. Four hundred pounds. Uh, yeah, because I, I, that was the amount of money I got for signing for Motherwell. Yeah, was it the only so Morris Marina was, in the uh, car park? It was. Um, it was the only car that was available in the whole world <laughs> for four hundred pounds. <laughs> I was. <laughs> I'd, I'd signed for uh, for Motherwell uh, as a as another part time contract, and I was full-time student and uh, the, the, Ali McLeod was the was the manager who signed me for, for Motherwell and uh, he offered me um, £400 to sign then and, and another £400 somewhere later on in the season and uh, considering that, that at Villa I was on something like I think with his apprentices which was uh, the same rate Throughout um, apprenticeships in any any uh, discipline, it was uh, first year was sixteen pound, 
the second year things went up to a huge £20. So to get £400 um, straight away from from after one, well, offer of £400 uh, was, was was a huge amount. You know, I, well, it was a huge amount because I, I, bought a, I bought a vehicle with it that was good enough for, to transport me from from Airdrie to Glasgow University and from Airdrie to Mother mm. and back for two years. Not within a few interesting scrapes, but I never had any uh, road traffic accidents. I saw a few. Yeah, you probably couldn't gone fast enough to get into many scrapes in the Morris Marina. Ah, but that wasn't to do anything to do with the fact of going fast. It was a problem with the brakes. <laughs> <laughs> um, your hobbies outside of football, you said, were uh, horse riding, skiing, chess, collecting matchboxes, darts, <laughs> water skiing, and mountain climbing. So, any of those true? <laughs> Well, no, yeah. Well, at the time, yeah, the the uh, I did, yeah, yeah, I did, and I've had a I've had a dartboard. Yeah, I did enjoy playing darts. Yeah, I played um, chess at school. Uh, represented um, the school at chess uh, up until well, primary school. So I played chess quite a lot uh, up until I was about ten years of age, and we uh, played a match against. Um, uh, an all-girls school, and uh, we got whitewashed by them. And uh, I, I wouldn't play chess after that. So the skiing, I've never been skiing because we were never allowed. Uh, yeah, mountain climbing now. Where else was there? Uh, well, water skiing. The, yeah, water skiing. And the one I'm really interested in hearing about is uh, your collection of matchboxes. Oh, well, the, the matchbox one is... Um, I got, <laughs> I didn't get into, again, going back to the thing is that the people would send me matchboxes because uh, I had um, written uh, what you just read out. So I used to get matchboxes from from people. Uh, and I got a, a letter once from, I got, well, the, the, the parcel had been opened. It was in Manchester United and the parcel had been opened and there was a letter in it. And the letter in it was from from the uh, police who had said uh, they had um, opened the the parcel because it had um, originated in Northern Ireland, and uh, someone had sent me matchboxes, but with the matches still in it, mm-hmm. so it had been uh, <laughs> it flagged up in their uh, scanner machine, and it was just to let me know that uh, they'd uh, taken the, the matches out. But they'd sent on the matchboxes, and uh, could I uh, just if I was in contact with anybody from from Northern Ireland in the future, could you just say to them that uh, take the matches out before you uh, post them because uh, they've been flagged up as a an incendiary device? Yeah, it's a bit you of know, a there's all those stories that come out. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure. I've never asked anybody to send any matches from from Northern Ireland to see if that's still the same case or anywhere in the UK now. So, um, but yeah, I, I yeah, I got lots of matchboxes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think you're uh, quite a political animal, Brian, because um, in two of these interviews, it asked you about what would you like to do if you were invisible or a fly on the wall, and you said sitting on a cabinet meeting. 
Um, but one of my favorite answers for all three of these articles, which still resonates today more than 30 years on, is to the question, what frightens you most? Uh, to which you answered, the Conservative government. Um, same, same as it ever was, eh? Yeah, well, I think that uh, I've been proven correct when it comes to that. Uh, certainly been well, openly it's uh, a lot of, a lot more people because of the situation we've been in since uh, all this year will have uh, had a lot more experience of what that's been like now it's become fairly uh, it just cements my opinion of many years uh, and I'm not just saying I'm, look, I'm just looking at one particular site when it comes to politics and and politicians but uh, my sort of recollection is that that uh, in in my early days that politicians were an awful lot better at telling lies and being convincing than they are now mm. uh, well to know that it's just it's it's a, it's entertaining and it's so entertaining you don't need to um, parody it anymore because I don't think you can because it's so ludicrous the things that are said uh, claimed and counterclaimed on a daily basis by uh, by people who are supposed to be uh, uh, by, by supposed to be posturing the same policy uh, there's confusion uh, all over the place. Uh, so that, that and I'm, I'm not just saying that because it's not it's been a while since there's been a, a, an alternative an alternative government but what we're seeing and uh, reading about um, I like to, to read and look at all the views I don't just look at um, left wing material because I think it's right wing materials some other stuff to get a, a view of what people think and it's another great way of, of being able to, to have a debate and an argument about with people, uh, some some friends included. To I'm I've always been against um, Brexit, uh, but I've got some people that, I, that I enjoy their company who are, are Brexiteers. So there's an interesting debate to go along, along with that, uh, and still a particular well. There's a long way to go before any of that settled, uh, but it's just it's, it, it is ludicrous and funny in a macabre kind of way. The the sort of nonsense that's uh, another part of it for me is that one of the most advantages or disadvantages when I was at university, I did a year of statistics, and the very first thing one of the, I did there was the maths, physics, and chemistry, and they were um, very stiff, and all the all your um, lecturers and all your uh, tutors wore, um, well, male tutors wore shirts and ties and tweed um, three-piece suits and were very, uh, very straight and very, um, but when we, when I enrolled to do statistics, we went into the first lecture and the lecturer bowled in and he had uh, jeans on and he had a big woolly jumper on it with a gigantic hole in the sleeve. And my first impression was, I'm going to like statistics. And then he, his first, his opening gambit in the first lecture of, of statistics was, 
let me tell you that statistics are like a loose woman. Once you get your hands on them, you can do anything you want with them. I thought, I'm going to like statistics. And I did. And I had a year of statistics. So it gave me a, an insight into all of this stuff about trying to use or disuse or disprove uh, anything and everything uh, that's relevant to to now or even uh, or even try to work out what's going to happen in the in the short distant future if not the far future mm. and uh, that's also mirrored in the sense of of what happens so it's happened in the states as well so it's happened in the states you know you, I'm sure that anybody of, of from my time, couldn't imagine that that what's what's occurred in in, in the in the political arena in, in the the thirty years that you mentioned. Mm. So in a way, it's, it's it's entertaining, but tragic as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of entertainment, across a, a couple of these things, you say that your favourite TV characters are Inspector Gadget and Danger Mouse. Uh, again, was that you yeah. taking the Mickey? Or were you just no, getting no. exposed to too no. much kids' TV at that time? Uh, no, no, this was uh, this is me watching it myself. This was nothing to do with the kids. The kids were uh, <laughs> uh, He Man and Shira and uh, My Little Pony. So that was uh, that was stuff of later on. No, this was stuff I liked because I, I always thought that it was. Um, it's a bit like um, I suppose that a lot of the more modern cartoons you have now. There is a. Uh, I think they're done for children and adults, depending on which way you want to look at them. Um, Danger Mouse was created in Manchester and or produced in Manchester. So um, no, I like. I just I liked. I really liked. Um, I liked what they were doing. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it was just a different thing to say, but it was something I did enjoy and I still would enjoy. Mm. Quite like to film the Inspector Gadget film, yeah, because they were quite like that. Yeah, so, so anything that they uh, like that, yeah. But again, I not. I mean, anything. I liked anything in a way of being obtuse that uh, uh, any of my teammates didn't like. Mm. Or immediately, not not all of them, but a lot of them, you know. So yeah. Oh, uh, I did for a while. Um, I did like Coronation Street for a while. Oh, I've not, I've not watched that for years. No, I never have I, but I did like it. I did like it. Yeah. Um, if we return to some football-related stuff here, you've said that the biggest disappointment, uh, which is acid, the last of these three profiles, is uh, Davy Hay getting the sack at Celtic. Um, can you tell us about why you've chosen that and also sum up your time playing at Parkhead in the mid-'80s? Because there were some great players there and throughout the whole league. Um, you know, it was such a great time, a golden period, if you like, for club football in Scotland? I think that the David Hayes sacking was because of 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 how they had, um, how they, they went about it really, was that David Hayes um, had come out to see me to, to talk about, um, uh, well, just to see if I'd made up my mind about whether I was going to leave Chelsea and sign for well, the only one other place I was uh, ever considering was Manchester United. And we had a, a nice chat about it. And he was going back to to the board to um, to tell him that, that, that 
the chat had been the like, positivist that he felt, and he went back and uh, or on the way back, um, or he, he went in and they and told um, Celtic board that uh, the talks had gone well and that uh, something to consider. And then, uh, but them knowing that um, they'd already made a decision and they'd offered someone else a job. So they sat down and then they let them leave. And then they, they called them back and they called them back. Or I don't know whether they called them back and they went back to the stadium or they did it at the stadium or what. But they, um, they, they told him that uh, he was no longer Celtic manager. And uh, sitting in a car around the corner was uh, was Bellamy Neil, who who became who became Celtic manager for the second time. Uh, so I think I think it was unfair. I'm not saying it was unfair in the sense of what you were looking at, but uh, the, that season we uh, had a had a quite a considerable lead over Rangers, which eventually uh, got eroded and we, we we didn't win, and that was the first title under. Um, with uh, uh, for Graeme Souness and Rangers then, but I wouldn't have said that it was a had been a terrible season for for David. Mm-hmm. But they decided that, that uh, they wanted to make a change. But I think the way the way the way they went about it was poor in my my view. I've, I've never changed my my opinion about that. Loved being at Celtic for four years. Just everything about it from being there and being. One day, uh, admiring from a distance or sometimes close up when I played against them for Motherwell, to sitting in the dressing room with uh, wonderful men and wonderful talent. Uh, Tommy Bonds, Danny McGrain, uh, Peter Larsford, Pat Boner, Frank McGarvey, who I've bumped into a few times recently, who uh, is an unconscious comedian, and David Proven, who's doing really well and, and uh, working for satellite TV in there. Uh, and I really enjoyed it, being in that dressing room. The, the band was wonderful. We, we, when I was sitting there originally, before I felt confident enough to join in, uh, it was great. Uh, watching that, ribbing each other and the chat. And being with them, they were a very positive influence. And, and that type of football just suited me about playing going out and just playing and trying to score more goals in the opposition. Something that I've been fortunate enough to be involved in all my playing career. Mm-hmm. Uh, never been anything negative, negative tactics. It was, you're better than them, go out and prove it. Uh, and I, yes, I loved every, every day of it. It was, it was, well, every day apart from the running part. <laughs> um. If we lean a little bit towards the age-old topic of the old firm playing in the English Premier League or First Division as it was uh, back in the 80s, obviously you moved to Manchester United from Celtic, so you're pretty well placed to answer this. Um, if you'd dropped Celtic, Aberdeen, Dundee United, Rangers, Hearts too from your era into that First Division as it was then, how do you think they would have fared? I think they would have fared all right. I think they would have, um, they would have yeah, I think they would have, they would have fared pretty well. Uh, but you'd have to have a look at uh, in the sense of who was yeah I think from from all of them uh, maybe one or two might flip with the bottom very bottom part of the the table maybe one or two might 
flip with the towards top six, top seven, top eight at that particular top point. Uh, but they would have, they would have been. We were, I, don't, I don't think that ten of them would have would have really struggled um, at all. I think they would have would have done pretty well. Yeah, but it's uh, it's uh, something that's never going to that debate is always. It depends who it suits, I suppose. You know that we've got other debates now. Whether the debate a couple of weeks ago, it was uh, probably wasn't. Well, from one point of view, at the time and all that, is it taking advantage of the the situation that uh, we find ourselves in with regards to professional football, um, which is which the Premier League or the Premier League members have decided that uh, that's not the way they want to go. Uh, or was it the, the, another way of improving the, the football in well, the whole of English football? We won't know that until that's, that, that resolution has been decided. And now you've got some other uh, people who are... You're always getting a bit back to the bit, but is it always... Is, the first question I think you're asking about this, is it all about the money? Is it about finance? Or is it the best thing for football? Yeah. I would always... Being a Corinthian, wanted to be the best thing for football, mm-hmm. uh, but it would appear that it seems to be the best thing for financial reasons. Uh, football's got to be the most important part. Mm. Football, I mean, that a lot of the things that people don't understand uh, for me is that there are there are only two proper protagonists in football. And that's the players and the supporters. Everybody else is just there to 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 play a role round about that. Coaches and managers now have tried to 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 muscle in on that. Even people who make decisions out with that have uh, sought to have a uh, a public profile. But it's only about the players and it's only about the fans, and that's always going to be the case. And I think you can see that quite clearly. I mean. Watching, um, uh, I watched a bit of a game yesterday the, uh, from Kiev, and they had some supporters in the stadium. I think they're allowed a third, and even allowed the third. The sort of noise that was made at the moments when things occurred in the game was clearly far, far better than 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 silent stadium or or these generated noises that the uh, the TV companies have. have Overlaid uh, through live performances, you need to get fans back in stadiums uh, because the game is not the same. Players are not the same, uh, and uh, that's what you—that's part of what you want to do. You know, winning, but playing in front of people who who go because they want to go and say what they want to say and behave how they would like to behave. People get. Uh, kept caught up with this thing about criticism. Now, I'm, I was delighted to get criticised or harangued because I know that every single one of those people who are doing that would swap me, you know, swap me just for five minutes to be on that pitch getting ridiculed or harangued or um, lambasted. And yeah, then that's part of the thing, that's part of the, the experience. I, get, I, I think that some players are actually enjoying not having crowds. I think you can see that in some people, some players that you watched before and you think, oh, 
it's not playing a bit better. But you have to be able to, that's what you should be able to do. You have to be able to manage all of that. Uh, and you need, you, you, football will not be the same until uh, fans are allowed back into stadiums. Mm. And, it, and that will, will, will occur whenever it's decided that, that it's going to be the case. Uh, Safety is paramount, but football won't be the same. It's not the same. Brian Robson into McLare. Now here's a chance. McLare, yes! Go for Manchester United by Brian McLare. If we move on to Manchester United then, and we'll start by revisiting the question, who is the worst comedian you've ever seen? Your answer, Alex Ferguson. Now I hope that A, he's got a a decent sense of humour, and B, he's never going to read... He's never going to read those things. Well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. He has got a good sense of humour. Yeah, he's still got a good sense of humour. I mean, he, that was thing as long as it was on, as long as it was on his terms, you know. So as long as he was uh, playing the practical joke, then that that was funny. If it was the other way around, uh, he would be, um, you would be attempting at your peril, which the peril could go from um, him telling you to. Uh, where to go uh, using uh, poetic language or peril could be you could be putting yourself potentially in a situation to get removed from the the club completely so for me he was very good in in that he let me away with an awful lot of things that I thought were funny that um, Maybe he didn't, but he, I always think if you put yourself in a situation where you put yourself under pressure to perform, you know, and, and he was ultimately interested in what kind of performance you put in whenever the, whatever kickoff time was right to the very end uh, and the final whistle blew. Uh, no, I wouldn't have said that he was, uh, he's not the... In, at that time, when I was saying that, you know, I didn't think he was particularly amusing, but I've learned throughout the having spent more time with him that he, uh, he has, like, more, like all footballers, has got a sense of humour. But when he's in a role of being the gaffer, which he still is, uh, he had to, to behave in a certain way. But there was certainly, he would have a, the odd practical joke, yeah, that he found hilarious. Usually involved pain, but he thought it was hilarious. Um, you were at United for 11 years as a player, over a 400 appearances, 127 goals, and a stack of winners' medals. But those first couple of years, once you first moved down there, they were up and down, to say the least, until that 1990 FA Cup win kicked it all, all off for the success that followed. Um, do you really believe the famous Mark Robbins goal saved Alex's job, uh, which led to all that success? No. No, because he, it was... He, been there every day from he had he had, he had changed uh, well the most important thing uh, from a recruitment point of view any uh, in, in, in any team sport or any sport maybe is that is when you're looking at uh, someone you're interested in yeah you think that they're going to be um, good enough to to play for your football team or any other team but the key element is that 
how often are they available to pull the shit over their head? And that, that's all that can, it's important. I mean, people were banging on and we're always watching football last night. They're talking about players that are not available. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. They're not available. There's no use to you. What's used to is the players that are available. And that's how all managers go about managing and, and picking teams. He, he transformed that in Manchester United because when I first went, there was a lot of good players, but not enough of them were available often enough to make it um, to make it worthwhile keeping them. So that's why he decided that, um, that, that these people had to go and he had to bring in players. And if you look at the players he brought in, the number of games that they played and the number of years and seasons that performed for Manchester United is quite remarkable right through his old tenure. And that's a huge part of, of, of Manchester United under his tutelage, his success, as the players that were available to play, uh, and to be relied upon to play, and be relied upon to play uh, and sometimes not their own position. Uh, so it was a great management tool and management ability that, that he had about that. So you could already see that was happening uh, at the football club. You could see it was happening because we, we, at that time football uh, started to be played uh, on Sundays as well. So on a Saturday morning we'd be training and you got the chance to watch the, uh, the youth team playing at home uh, at the cliff. And you could see the abundance of young, good young players that would eventually be going to become players for Manchester United and other clubs who had long, long and successful careers with Manchester United and other clubs. So there was a there was a certain situation about the place where it was it was it was vibrant. It just needed to uh, to filter up the way, and then we were getting closer and closer to that. He, uh, to his huge credit, absorbed a, a gigantic amount of the. The shit that went well with that. We got stuck quite rightly on a Sunday, or maybe in the in the, 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 the six the radio program after the game, the Sunday newspapers or the evening papers, Sunday newspapers, maybe a bit in the Monday morning. That's what you. That's what our criticism was was limited to. He was getting it every single day from everywhere, and he sheltered us from that. Now, we knew quite clear. We knew clearly what he thought about us and our performances individually and collectively, because he told us, we knew exactly about that, but he never, never made that public. And he, he as I say, he had her from all the other maelstrom that was going around. And it just was part of, of, um, of an improvement of a football club. He told me that when I signed for Manchester United, do you want to be part of rebuilding a football club? Because I'm going to rebuild this one. I thought, yeah, well, I like the idea of that. Yes, I do. Yes, yes, please. I'll, I'll, I'll like to be a part of that. Beyond my wildest, and I'm sure his wildest imagination, is what occurred in that period of time, right up until, including when he decided to pack it in as the, the manager of Manchester United. But he'd created a lot of good things. It was a, a decent environment. Just needed to get the results. And... One of the things about, I asked a friend of, um, of um, the gaffers who knew him going back to when he first started coaching uh, and when he was in his 30s, what was, what was the secret of him? What was, it, what was it he had, you know? He said, well, I think that he makes decisions 
always makes decisions and sticks by those decisions. And the um, the second one is um, he's a lucky bastard. <laughs> he said if he fell into the Clyde, he said to me if he fell into the River Clyde, when they fished him out, he would have a salmon in either pocket. So sometimes you need to have a bit of fortune. And right through that cup run, uh, there was all sorts of different things. Every game was away, apart from semi-finals. Every game was on a Sunday. And throughout that, every single one of those games, uh, there was there was fortune that favoured uh, Alex Ferguson and Manchester United during those cup ties. The league form was still atrocious, but we managed to accumulate enough points not to get dragged into a relegation battle. Uh, and when you're uh, when you've you've been there in any cup final, uh, you want to, to repeat that, and you and you want to, that to continue. That did continue for Manchester United for many, many, many competitions and um, many successes. Uh, but it's always a good story. But part of the part of that story was it gave one of the things that gives you uh, or gives a manager a kind of easy team talk is that that uh, he. The, the Nottingham Forest game Sunday it was live on TV live on BBC and they'd overheard Jimmy Hill talking uh, before the game saying that we look like a beaten team in the warm-up so that was Jimmy Hill's was mm. statement before the game so the manager wanders in and goes he didn't he didn't he, he, re, he replaced Jimmy with another uh, well-known swear word <laughs> and uh, saying that you're a t- beaten team in the warm-up which right away Gives you well another impetus and another thing to to give you a lift because it was uh, going back to that bit about uh, players being available to play in the game. Uh, if if it wouldn't have been that team had everyone been fit and capable of playing, Matt Robbins wouldn't have played. So mm. sometimes that's that's what happens. But but Jimmy Hill was was started off the commentators' curse when it came to Alex Ferguson's teams. Um, one question I want to probe you on relates to in relates to the interview done in your first season at United, which asks for your favourite away ground. Uh, your answer, Highbury, intrigues me for a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, you said because the dressing rooms had heated floors, which is a bit fancy. Um, and secondly, because I think it was that season when you missed a late penalty in front of a packed North Bank in an FA Cup fifth round game that you lost 2-1. Uh, and you had your first confrontations with Arsenal's Nigel Winterburn. Now, having seen the footage recently, uh, it looks like he has a, a little bit of a nibble at you, um, and you have a bit of a coming together again a couple of years later in the famous Battle of Old Trafford in 1990. So, what what did Winterburn say to you there? Was it is it something that you can repeat? I don't know. I don't recall what he said. I know that he was very aggressive in what he was doing. I mean, it was it was. Surprising to me because you're in a situation where we've been 2 0 at half time. I'd scored a goal, we're back in the game, we get a penalty, and I've missed the penalty, which is disappointing. You know, I missed a penalty in any game. You don't need anyone uh, else adding to that, adding to that, to that, and certainly not someone uh, who I'd never, I'd never had anything to do with, never met him, never played against him. Uh, I had no history at all. From my point of view, from what I can gather, to to uh, be as confrontational as as that, uh, and there, there was something else that happened in between the. Um, so 
that, I don't know exactly. I don't. I don't know what he said exactly. What it was he said. I don't know. It was aggressive and confrontational. So uh, that was probably the. It wasn't the beginning of the, the rivalry between, or that particular rivalry between Alex Ferguson's teams and Arsenal, because the season before, um, Alex Ferguson's team had halted Arsenal's unbeaten league run in a 2-0 win at uh, Old Trafford, where um, um, there was, uh, I saw some of that recently, and <laughs> some of the time, no, no one went outside, uh, it was great friend and wonderful player but yes some just some tackling and that are just it's um it's uh, that um mixed martial arts really it's not football you know in the sense yeah. of what you see now, you know so but the but the, that i think that's that rival kind of started then so yeah um, but what about other great things to talk about isn't it you know as part of what being entrenched in people's memories as is, um, uh, yeah, that always gets mentioned uh, the the penalty at Arsenal, and uh, it's been um, thirty years since the twenty-two man brawl. Yeah, who, who, I only found like... out it was. I only found out recently it was twenty-two. I always thought it was twenty-three because I always remember that uh, David Seaman uh, wasn't interested or couldn't be bothered wandering down from his goals. I just assumed everybody else is involved until recently. Clayton Blackmore uh, confessed that he had uh, stayed well clear of it, you know. So it's now a, it's now it's twenty-two man. No, sorry, twenty man bro. I thought it was twenty-one man bro. It's mm. twenty man bro. So it was um, one of the things about that though is you're talking about being part of a team, and the, both sides did the same thing. All of their players stuck up for their team, right? If you look at the picture of Michael Thomas caught me by the throat and Tony Adams and and uh, Anders Limpar punched me in the side of the head uh, and my teammates are at my back. So in the sense of, of teams, uh, it's it's encouraging uh, to be involved in in, in that. Um, and then they say it's a similar part of the memory and what happened. I never got sent off ever. Right through all of my football life, never been sent off. I thought, this is it, I'm going to get sent off here. And uh, Keith Hackett, who was a referee, had, had stood back and waited till the, till the, uh, till the, this, uh, the slight, till it calmed down, really. And uh, he uh, booked Nigel, and that was it, play on. <laughs> Very different times, can you imagine, if anything remotely similar happened today, which of course it wouldn't. Um, you know, players, I don't think... Ever- there's a lot more sort of pushing and posturing rather than actually laying hands on each other. But uh, yeah, I think they'd be talked about in Parliament, and they want they want football banned, wouldn't they? If and if anything similar happened today, I would. I'd be quite happy for it to be talked about in Parliament, though. Yes, yeah, so they maybe have achieved something there. You know that. Would, uh, I, don't, I think it actually may have been spoken about in Parliament at the time. Yeah, uh, but it was. It wasn't. Uh, I mean, I, I got blamed for it, but it wasn't. It wasn't me. It was. It was. Uh, I like. I'll blame Nigel. Nigel probably blame me. So that's. But uh, there's still. It's, it's always. It's, it's not something you would particularly choose to do because I'm not. Uh, not normally that type of character. But every now and again, you go into the the red zone, and I was definitely in the red zone at that moment. <laughs> 
Um, Brian, what happened to you after you hung your boots up and what are you doing now? Well, I went into coaching and uh, and uh, been part of Manchester United's um, uh, academy. Uh, so I did that for, um, well, the next part of my my, my life that I was involved in that for, for 15 years, uh, which was incredibly um, satisfying to uh, playing, playing is the best thing because that's what I wanted to do in that year. I always knew that that was going to finish at a particular time and I had in my head that if you got to 35, you would, uh, you, that would be a decent time and I got to 35. Post that, I had another um, um, 15 years doing uh, coaching and tutoring young people uh, and the, the the game, particularly in England, is is has got a healthy um, smattering of of players who came through Manchester United's academy, and now I've actually uh, I've gone on to to their to their second uh, stages of of coaching, managing, and um, working in, in in the media, uh, uh, and every time I hear or see their names. Uh, it, I feel delighted of that, uh, that they've been part of my life and that they've been that they're successful. Um, now I'm talking to you on a world famous podcast, steady in the sunshine. Now I've um, I've um, got probably more. Um, I've got, I've got a, what I do now is please myself, which is good. So I do whatever I want to do now. Yeah, <clears throat> I love being involved in doing what I want to do. I, I had an incredible, I suppose, it, whether it's by design or by fortune, when you have um, managers of the uh, that uh, that I had in, in Alex Ferguson and David Gill, you you know that uh, that you were uh, you were very well looked after. And I, and I feel honoured to have been been in that situation, and and it made um, my role both as a coach and manager of Manchester United's academy um, a lot um, easier. And you're not going to find, and I'm never going to find that, that scenario again. To have people that understood you, trusted you, um, respected you, and you would be loyal to you. Uh, and until you're, you're in a situation where you find yourself not participating every single day, you don't really know what it's like not to do that. But since I've been um, not in full-time employment, I've actually quite enjoyed the freedom that, that allows you to to choose to do what you want to do and uh, not be at the um, the behest of some fool, uh, and football is full of fools. I don't like being told what to do, but because I respected Alex Ferguson and David Gill, and sometimes I got more own way, uh, I could I could uh, um, function in that that atmosphere. Uh, I don't think I would be able. It, it wouldn't be so easy for me to walk in or to be involved in a football club and have you know, someone who I am. Um, we had the polar opposites with regards to 
to save football development, which is my passion. Um, I, w- I, w- I would, I would um, proffer my view specifically and directly, uh, which may, uh, might or might not suit that particular employer. Mm. Uh, but I'm quite happy, as I say, doing bits and pieces of consultancy when asked, uh, and we're getting uh, plenty of exercise. And plenty of time to listen to music and watch and read. Yeah, and do podcasts. The, yeah, living the dream, eh? Well, certain people that, that that have got proper jobs of which I have no understanding of whatsoever because I've never had one say exactly the same things. These are friends of mine who get up in the morning and do proper graft, you know, like uh, building or selling or painting and decorating, or um, indeed who are. Uh, musicians and in in groups who at the moment are uh, having a bit of a tough time because they um they can't perform and do what they love to live audiences what advice would you give yourself if you could go back to the 1980s and do you think that your younger self would have taken any notice See, when i was 17 i knew everything i thought i could rule the world at 17 i knew everything about everything and uh at the time, I was at Mullerville and uh, Jocks Wallace, who was a manager at the time, who was fierce and tough, but had a lot of experience uh, in in life and in football, tried to get me to listen. Uh, and I did listen to, to bits and pieces of it, other bits and pieces <clears throat> I discarded, but I was allowed to find out for myself, I think, uh, or I decided I was going to allow myself to think to find out going back to tell myself something now no I don't think I would change I would say the same thing is that uh, the only maybe the one thing that that that, uh, that would be of relevance is maybe writing down one or two things every day so make a note of what happened in training or what happened in the dressing room. Then, uh, then there might be a book in that. But other than that, it was, I'm quite happy with how I went about what, what happened. What I did is that for some reason I decided going right, right the way back to um, whenever, whenever I had conscious thought that I was going to enjoy myself every day and find something, at least one thing a day, that was going. That was going to make me smile. That I was going to enjoy, and, and I've continued to do that. Fantastic. So after I've spoken to you, I'm going to find something enjoyable to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should have stopped. I knew. I knew you were going to line me up for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, it's been a pleasure to have you on the po- uh, on the podcast. Thanks very much for your time and for talking through these old well, interviews. Thanks for asking me. No, that's good. No, it's been uh, it's been really good and very rewarding. Thanks for that. Thanks for asking. It's. Uh, a great concept you've got, and I hope we have a lot of future success with it. Um, the listeners can find you on Twitter, can't they? At Brian McClare 13. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and they'll also be able to read your resurrected Chockey's diaries throughout the season on the Set Pieces website. Um, and they're well worth a read uh, when everybody gets a chance. That's very kind of you. Well, thanks again, Brian. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to What Happened to You. 
You can find us across all the main podcast platforms, so please don't forget to subscribe. For updates about future guests and new episodes, follow us on Twitter at WHTYPod. For extra content related to what happened to you, including the original interviews that inspired this episode, visit our friends The Set Pieces at www.thesetpieces.com and follow them on Twitter at The Set Pieces. We'll be back again soon, so until next time, goodbye.